This week's Institute of Ideas podcast is called The Corbyn Effect, Are the Old Parties Dead? and was recorded at the recent Battle of Ideas Festival in London. The chair is Bruno Waterfield. Good evening and welcome to uh, last debate of the day. And we're going to be talking about um, the Corbyn effect. Are the old um, parties dead? Um, so the idea of this uh, discussion, which is framed by the sort of long-standing decline in sort of post-war political consensus, the collapse of membership of political parties, um, the rise of populist parties uh, across Europe in most countries in Europe. It's all framed by that. Their discussions are quite long-rehearsed. Um, but there's a new development with uh, Jeremy Corbyn as leader um, of the Labour Party. So we're going to look at whether that tells us anything about the contours of a new terrain or a new landscape, a new politics. There were figures out from the House of Commons um, in August on political party um, membership. It's at an all-time low. 1% of British voters are members of political parties. That's, it's, it's fallen by um, sort of roughly about 75% over the last 32 um, years. The changes are striking over time. So in uh, the Tories currently have 149,000 uh, members. In 1953, they had 2.8 million members. Uh, that means that over um, that period, perhaps people died, um, they've lost um, 95% um, of their membership. The Labour Party, which was at just over a million in 1953, is now uh, around about a quarter uh, that size. So we've seen the decline in membership of political um, parties, um, the rise of new parties. So the, the, the SNP with 110,000 members um, is bigger than the Liberal Democrats with 61,000 members. So those figures are sort of an artefact, clearly, or a product of something um, that's going on. And we also see, and there's a very strong sense of a real gulf, um, estrangement and even antagonism between um, many people, many members of the public, and the sort of political uh, class and the pundits and the commentariat who sort of conduct political life. And this was very clear in May last year um, when Nigel Farage, the leader of UKIP, did a, an interview um, with LBC. And during that interview, he said there was a huge difference between uh, a group of Romanian men moving in next door to you and a German family. Ed Miliband said it was a racial slur. Um, I, I remember being on Twitter um, as it was all going on and the sort of commentary at political class on, on Twitter, it's the place where they seem to live, um, were all rejoicing that at last Farage was toast, he'd gone too far, um, finally the mask had slipped and we could all see it was the BMP um, in blazers. But the public actually thought um, rather different and Farage wasn't toast. He went on to do, or UKIP went on um, to do rather well in the European elections um, just a week uh, later. So all the political pundits who said he's gone too far, it's a racial slur, it's over for him. They were all completely um, wrong. The public were indifferent to their often sort of rather faux 
outrage. So there's a gulf between the political class who get terribly aerated and upset about things and members of the public who probably agreed with Farage. And I remember talking to him uh, just afterwards and he was saying that, because it, it was a very drama, one of his sort of spin doctors came running in and dragged him out of the studios, were sort of tearing his jacket and they were screaming him in a taxi, you know, you've blown it and all this kind of stuff. And Farage said that you know, in his gut he knew that people wouldn't really mind that people agreed with him. Uh, and he was, you know, basically, he was right and the political class um, had got it wrong. So is that all changing? Is that all going to change with Corbyn? Is Corbyn... Is the significance of him coming to the leadership of the Labour Party? We're going to have a new politics that's going to change all that um, and close the Gulf. And I wonder. I mean, if you look at his appointment of Kerry McCarthy as Shadow um, Agriculture Secretary, um, here's a woman who's a vegan um, who thinks that meat eaters should be treated in the same way of smokers. So doesn't that perhaps just illustrate that maybe the Gulf will um, still be? Um, there, we've got a great panel to talk about it. We're not doing speeches. Um, we're going to have a conversation, um, and that means a conversation with um, you as well. So I'll start with Andrew. Andrew's an author and uh, a political journalist. He, he's a contributing editor um, to Conservative um, Home, and I recommend you read his article in Defence of Corbyn, which he published on September the 20th, which is a very good uh, read, a beautiful bit of writing. His most recent, well, the, the book he wanted me to, to mention, which is very well reviewed, is uh, Gimson's Kings and Queens, Brief Lives of the Monarchs um, Since 1066, which has been compared favourably to 1066 um, and all that. Um, next to him on my immediate right is Miranda Green. Um, she is a journalist covering uh, politics and education. She was previously at the Financial Times. She's a regular pundit um, at the BBC. You'll see her face a lot on telly. And once upon a time, um, she worked for the Lib Dems, um, 96 to 2000, and, and was Paddy Ashdown's press secretary. On my far left is um, David Aronovich, um, who's a columnist um, at the Times. Um, he's the author... Um, of an excellent book, um, Voodoo Histories, which I believe is on sale um, downstairs, so you can buy that if you haven't got it already. And in January, he's got a new book um, coming out called Party Animals, My Family and Other Communists. Um, on my immediate left is um, Alex Dean, who's Managing Director of FTI Consulting, previously at Weber uh, Shandwick, where he was Head of Public Affairs. And he's not just a lobbyist, um, he's a political operator um, as well, and I recommend you read his report, Big Brother Watch, um, The State of Civil Liberties in Modern Britain. Uh, my name is Bruno Waterfield. I'm a Brussels correspondent at The Times, um, and I give you Andrew Gimson. Thank you very much. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn has enormously enlarged freedom of speech within the Labour Party. We're living through the Corbyn Spring, how long it will... Well, actually, it's autumn, of course, now. And <laughs> the Corbyn Spring may not last for very long, but it's extremely enlivening, and it's a very good thing while it does, because I think many people in the Labour Party felt, certainly since 1994, that there was really absolutely no appetite among the leadership for any kind of new ideas or different ideas about either the economy or defence or many other, or indeed equality, very, very important Labour values. Corbyn is now... Um, has come in as an expression, I think, of the intense frustration of many 
Labour and ex-Labour members who rejoined for the purposes or re-registered for the purposes of voting, uh, they were completely fed up with this sterile hostility, really, to ideas, this almost Stalinist way of running the party. Um, so in that respect, Corbyn is a very good thing. Whether it will last is questionable, and whether it will make the Labour Party electable is also questionable, because some of these people, which I think is a perfectly defensible view, but they prefer complete freedom and indeed purity of idea to the always tiresome compromises which you have to make if you actually are a political party intent on winning a general election. I would say that party politics as we've known it uh, has looked as if it was sort of dying or at least in a sort of zombie state. Anyone who has to you know check to the party conferences every year will have will have felt this kind of terrible heavy sick weight of, of the party organisations. Uh, for some time. However, I'm completely unconvinced that anything to do with Jeremy Corbyn is the answer to reviving politics or indeed to uh, reviving a connection, a meaningful connection between party politics and the general public. Because although it's true that a vast number of people have rejoined or joined for the first time the Labour Party, as Andrew has said, to support Jeremy Corbyn, they they represent 0.5% of the electorate and there's no evidence, in fact there's evidence of the reverse... Uh, of whether they're actually expressing anything about uh, how the general public feel. Um, I also think that this idea of the new politics, whilst very interesting, and it's also something that I would want to work towards, is not what we're seeing with the Corbyn phenomenon. What we are seeing is that the left now has somewhere to gather. And that is new, (laughs) but it doesn't make for new politics. And we're also seeing, you know, the rise of nationalism in this country and across Europe. Bruno's talked about this as a sort of Europe-wide phenomenon. We're seeing the rise of, you know, identity politics, something that I, as a Liberal, would be very much against. And we're also seeing this, you know, popular antagonism towards elites, which may be founded on quite genuine and respectable anger about individual things. But I fear that what it's leading to is something else new, which is that you can almost say anything now about people who are viewed as part of this appalling governing technocratic elite and be believed, even if it's total nonsense and a fantasy. You know, I would mention possibly things like accusing people of foul sexual crimes without any evidence. I would, you know, even say, say, alleging in a published book that sells quite well that the Prime Minister of our country, who was, after all, elected, you know, performed um, strange sexual acts as a student with dead animals on the basis of absolutely no verifiable evidence uh, whatsoever. Um, And it seems to me that we're actually entering a sort of age of unreason, which I think is far from the new politics. I think it's extremely unhealthy. So, one, membership of political parties doesn't necessarily equal the only way you can establish people being interested in politics. You're all at least interested in politics enough to have found your way through the crystal maze challenge of getting to this room, right? (laughs) But I I dare say not everyone in the room is a member of a political party. In fact, some will have thought about it and chosen of their own free will, being um, politically minded and thoughtful, that none of the parties is for them right now. And that's a legitimate intellectual choice, and it doesn't mean you're less interested in politics necessarily. Uh, Two, actually the political parties are gaining in membership. Sure, if you compare it from the 1950s, uh, it it may be that membership is lower, because again, joining a political party is not the only way you have of voicing your interest in politics. But it's certainly gone up since two years ago uh, for the main parties. So actually, even if you do think membership is the yardstick, then things aren't that bad if you adopt a shorter time frame than going back to the 1950s. And thirdly, and finally from me in this first round, 
I say beware criticisms of populism. You really beware people who assume that you're being interested in politics or people, you know, the man on the street being interested in politics is bad. You know, it, it's, people talk about it as if having an interest in or an enthusiasm about politics or the ideas that govern politics or those who govern us is somehow above your station and it should be left to, you know, respectively judges in some cases or technocrats in others. You know, we had a democratic government in Italy, um, whether you like them or not, um, uh, turfed out for a bunch of technocrats to govern Italy instead, or commission appointed in Brussels for that matter, uh, very powerful and, and not elected by anybody. So beware those who say to you, um, you know, populism is necessarily bad, because what they normally mean is, I say your views are unacceptable, or views that are different to mine are unacceptable, we'll call them populist and fringe, and we'll get on with governing, whatever you think. Okay, on partisan party um, political uh, membership, party political membership of increased by 0.2% for the Labour, Lib Dems and Conservatives since 2011. And there was a bit of an increase across the board, but it was mainly accounted for by SNP. Yeah, I'm absolutely fixated on the shape of this room, actually, and I can't kind of get over it. Uh, you can see me over there, but you couldn't see Andrew Gimson, could you, who is actually speaking completely naked. He is totally nude, but you just can't see that. No, no, you're still, you're still, and that is really, and that is, so you are literally behind the curve. Um, uh, which is unfortunate, which is unfortunate. It's, it's, it, so this room embodies the, the new politics, which is that it's very, it's very different from any room you've ever sat in before and is, and is also impractical. Um, uh, I went to, I just want to very quickly say that in 2001, um, uh, while I was working for The Guardian, uh, I decided to take myself off to a particular elect the election uh, to, to a particular constituency, partially because I visited it three years before for uh, for the first book I was writing, and partially because there were some kind of rumours that there was an insurgent candidate standing there on a health ticket who had some chance of winning. Um, the seat was a seat called Wire Forest. It's up um, on the uh, River Severn, um, takes in Kidderminster uh, and parts of. Worcestershire, in some industrial and rural parts of Worcestershire. It had been a Tory seat up until 97 and was one of those strange seats that was won on the Blair landslide in 1997. In 2001 I went up there and spent some time with the candidate who was a local uh, doctor, uh, a local general practitioner as it happens. And I spent the day with him walking up and down the streets, uh, listening to what people had to say to him and to his pitch and so on. And I thought... If this were anything like, had any kind of lessons for any other seat, it is that given similar sorts of conditions in virtually any seat in the country right now, this was 2001, the existing main political parties would be turfed out for this kind of candidate. I can tell you, I could tell you straight away, it wouldn't really matter how many members they'd had there and so on. Uh, there was, by then, simply not the degree of automatic attachment to party which had also attached itself to class which is the main big 
reason for the secular decline in political parties. People were born into political parties uh, back in the 50s. No one almost is born into political parties. Now, political parties and political affiliation is a matter of consumerist choice. And one of the reasons why people don't go into compendium parties is because compendium parties won't represent the full range of their choices and they're incredibly unwilling to compromise themselves by being associated with things that they even disagree with mildly. They want to be associated all the times with things that they agree with all the time. We are in the Twibbon era where what you do is you effectively take a political selfie of yourself with Jeremy Corbyn in the background or the SNP in the background and for that period you say this is me and this is what I identify with and as soon as Jeremy Corbyn pisses you off or the SNP pisses you off you'll change the twib and you'll put somebody else there um, because that essentially is the form of consumerist politics which we've got into and which we must get used to but the thing that worries me is not the thing I mean I, Alex and I disagree about what populism actually is uh, to me, populism, by and large, is an attempt to blame a, usually a minority, but to blame an elite or to blame a group of people for all the problems and suggest that somehow or other, if you were to get rid of them or overturn them, all your problems would go away. So I make this final observation in this, in this place. One of the reasons I think why we talk about the new politics is so that we don't want to, t so we don't talk about how horrendously complicated the problems are that face us politically both as Britons and also in the world and if you wanted any illustration of it you'd have to look no further than say Syria since 2011 which probably represents the biggest foreign policy failure of the last century. I would say probably going back to the period of appeasement in the 30s if you wanted to, but probably something like that bit. And the consequence of which has been a series of movements that are so great and so undermine the capacity of governments to deal with them that we on the whole would rather discuss almost anything else than what it would take for governments to get together and to deal with a situation like that. I want it, first of all, because it's related to some of the stuff David was um, saying, uh, Miranda, this idea of the age of unreason, so, um, because um, there's this hostility and antagonism um, with elites and pretty wacky um, ideas can get out there and you can make these sort of very bizarre and unfounded uh, claims and they will gain common currency. And we, you know, we talked about Twibbons and, and Twitter and Twitter is one of those places where um, pretty wild accusations are, are, are made. Andrew, do you, do you think that's a, a feature of this new landscape? Because you seem to be um, a bit more positive than most uh, about, say, the Corbyn developments and some of the new landscape. I think people have always been fed up with elites, and that's part of our whole understanding of liberty in, in this country, is to say that um, whoever are, is running the show at the, any particular moment is terrible. So those people in... I mean, I didn't think it was a very intelligent thing to do in Manchester to shout scum at people like me in our suits going into the Conservative Party conference, but it was perfectly within the bounds of, of, of our understanding of liberty. Um, and it showed defiance and a refusal to sort of become part of, part of the establishment. Um, Sorry, but... One of the things I found really weird about the sort of shouting scum and the spitting and the sort of sheer naked sort of hysterical hatred almost and, and, and banners about uh, Margaret Thatcher, who, who, who was around quite a long time ago and is no longer, uh, no longer with us, is that actually in, in some respects this, this is the sort of least conservative 
party in terms of it doesn't really it doesn't it's sort of like it also eschews sort of ideological uh, well, conflict. So it's, it's, well, it seems a bit odd that everyone sort of seems to think that the David Cameron is like Margaret Thatcher when he's yes, he's not. I think actually the the, the Tory. I mean, it takes very long time to get over a successful leader. <laughs> Labour hasn't yet got over Blair, and certainly. The Tories, for years, were in terrible trouble about Thatcher in a slightly different way because you couldn't lead the Tory party without claiming to support the great Margaret Thatcher, but you couldn't win an election by claiming to support her. So there was a completely impossible trap there, which David Cameron has avoided partly through the passage of time and partly because he is an astonishingly unintellectual figure who would much rather watch Where Eagles Eagles Dare um, on a video than than ever read a book or anything troublesome like that. Um, So uh, he's he's managed to avoid this whole, this this, this trap for more ideologically-minded Tories. But the Tories have changed a lot, and that is why it wasn't a very impressive performance, just under 37% of the vote, but it was just good enough to get a majority. And they do have, they have changed. So, I mean, hating the Tories is, is, is... is uh, hating the Tories wasn't much good in the 80s because it, it, it meant if you thought they were just self-evidently evil, as people like Corbyn did, um, you didn't really think how to beat them. And I think that the same problem applies at least to some... Uh, Corbyn maybe is more thoughtful, I don't know, although there's some evidence he hasn't really done much thinking since 1978. But he's, um, I- I- if you just um, shout scum or accuse Cameron of being a Thatcherite, you don't understand that the Tory party has um, adapted a lot. It's got more women, it's got more members of ethnic minorities, it's got more people who sound um, like members of the working class. So it, it's no longer just a load of sort of hereditary old Etonians running the show. Okay. Alex, so you're, you've been accused of being uh, a populist um, who blames um, the elite for problems that, no, are, that are part of... No, I'm just, you know, just, uh, just trying to ramp it up a little bit. So. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's, everyone's being too, far too polite, and I'm a journalist, and that's what we do. Okay, so you have been accused, okay. Alex, of, of being a populist, essentially, yeah. who um, blames the elites um, for everything. You're conspiracy theorists, therefore, because um, the world is actually a complex place um, with sort of objective um, global uh, global uh, trends. So, uh, and you're contributing, presumably, to an age of unreason as well by doing that. Um, so, you know, defend yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, that, that was a very fair summary of the exchange, I'm sure. I, I think that people are capable of thinking more than one thing at once. I, I certainly hope that, uh, that they are. And I think that, uh, on the one hand, it, it's, the ca- it, it's broadly speaking true that people are disillusioned with our political elite now, and that take it or leave it in different forms. People have been uh, disillusioned with our political leap for as long as you can look back and think about it. There's nothing new about that. But I don't think... David and I were disagreeing a a bit, uh, not not as you were expressing it, but were disagreeing a bit, was about what the idea of of populism is. See, um, I'm, uh, of course, content to decry whether it would be racism or anti-Semitism or whatever it would be that would single out a a group of people and say, them, the other, they're responsible for all things. But actually, my my point is that um, notions of of populism as a criticism, as something that means you can't discuss it anymore, 
anymore have been applied to a whole ton of different um, ideas. Yet the idea per se that you might think uh, more immigration to this country than we currently have is a bad thing is populist, ergo racist, ergo wrong. The idea uh, that uh, people should be able uh, to determine their own freedom of choice about their intake on alcohol or cigarettes or uh, what they, how they spend their evenings is populist, ergo wrong um, from, from our unelected elite. Normally somebody from the BMA or has a stethoscope around their neck and therefore must be correct and knows more than you. Um, so those, those things are, are what I was talking about as far as populism was concerned. Yeah. But I was actually trying to make, I was trying to make a different point in, in my opening, which was that there's nothing wrong with Jeremy Corbyn seeking to appeal to values which some people think are populist or on the other side of the spectrum, outside of the traditional political norm, as it's been in the last mm. 10 or 20 years. It's actually a good thing. I find myself in the rather peculiar position of, of being on the right, but wishing Jeremy Corbyn rather well. I mean, not well enough to form government, but, you know, I, I, I wish him rather well. I'm not, just, I'm not just being mischievous. I actually also mean it, that I want somebody on the left to hold those values, express them, and attract people to entering into uh, political discourse. Pretty lucky for David Cameron, isn't it? Yeah, very, that is also very lucky. But I, but I mean it in and of itself, looking as an interested observer on the Labour mm. Party, which has to discover now whether or not they are at a 20% level of loud but limited support of people who really care about what Corbyn says, or if that is actually a, a base from which they can attract a majority for others. And that's a fascinating journey, and it's one on which I don't immediately dismiss yeah. them either. Um, Miranda, one of the things I've been struck by is, is, is the fact that even with Corbyn, I, I don't really see any sort of striking new ideas or really radical um, political um, positions. I see disarray. So, you know, the, the shadow chancellor does a U-turn on whether he supports the fiscal responsibility charter, George Osborne's uh, attempt to bind the hand of future parliaments on, on the sort of austerity, uh, the austerity that's in the Euro, on, on model of the Eurozone, in fact. But what's really astonishing was he ever supported it in the first place, if he's a radical socialist, the idea that a radical socialist would support a piece of legislation that basically says radical socialism is sort of constitutionally abolished um, <laughs> is, 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 is very peculiar. So where, where are... Do you detect any sign of radical new ideas that are going to shake things up? OK, this is really interesting because this is why the sort of centre-left... Uh, you know, embodied by those Blair Brown governments and embodied by a very powerful Labour Party that could be a catch-all party for non-conservative voters. I think, <coughs> David, I think you called it a compendium party. The reason that has sort of has failed now is, I think, because of a sort of slightly bankrupt feeling about ideas on the centre-left to challenge the consensus about the economy, austerity is the right way, after the crash, this is the only thing we could have done. There is room for a challenge to that. And I, 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 one of the reasons why I'm not happy about the Corbyn development, for example, is because I strongly thirst for an alternative to a centre-right consensus about the way things need to be and <coughs> the dominance of the corporations and all the rest of it. But the answer is not the nostalgic leftism of Jeremy Corbyn. And I think also this sort of... It, it, it's also nostalgic, the sort of certainty that the left... Uh, espouses as they espouse Corbyn, you know, and you can see the same sort of thing in in Scotland with the um, with the SNP. You know, people the SNP knows why it exists, and it's it's powered by that certainty as the left is, and that's very attractive to a certain sort of person who who wants to be in politics. But it's not the same as David has said as finding solutions to the problems that we face. And I think you've put your finger on it, Bruno, because I think that anybody who can come up with an alternative. 
uh, to the sort of centre-right consensus that really, really addresses the problems of the economy and can posit a different path to prosperity for, for normal people will will be able to change the conversation and that will be a good thing and I see absolutely no sign of that coming from Corbyn McDonnell and his panel of economic experts all of whom agree with each other that austerity is a bad thing. So David can there be an alternative can there be, can there be an alternative given some of the sort of trends that you were identifying? Well I mean of course there can be and but it would take a very powerful articulation of a new social democratic viewpoint to convince people that it was something that they were willing to risk. Um, and it is very difficult because I think, uh, I mean, one of the things I would like to do, I, I'd like to see, and to a, a tiny extent Corbyn does this and then he steps away from it, is I'd like to com change completely the way in which the language in which politics is discussed, if you like the paradigms where which politicians feel in, they have to answer questions, the way in which they're reported by mm. us in the media, the entire way in which the debate is framed in words that don't mean the things that you're so you so you're always it's a complete analog discussion where you try and work out what the thing you're hearing actually represents in real life and it's immensely frustrating and it is and it is now increasingly at odds with the way in which we actually discuss things uh, we don't now make a distinction if you like between public diction and the way in which you discuss things publicly and private discussion that 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 sort of big distinction um which you used to see in the kind of you know in, 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 in newspapers of record etc went a long time ago but the linguistics of it has somehow or other terribly appallingly remained behind so i'd like to see that i'd like to see that completely changed and insofar as let us say jeremy corbyn standing up at prime minister's question type and saying uh nancy from edmonton has a question for from you. Frankly, I prefer that immensely to the way in which uh, uh, Prime Minister's questions were before. And actually, you know what? So does David Cameron. In fact, David Cameron prefers it more than the Labour Party prefers it, because it allows him to say, oh, now let me just tell Nancy from Edmonton, etc., that I'm yeah. deeply concerned about uh, about all this kind of stuff. But at least it, but at le but at least it was a change. Now, Ed Miliband also tried to articulate an alternative, after all, to, let's say, what you might call Osbornean uh, economics. It is quite possible to cut the austerity cake, in mother, the economic cake, in a whole series of different ways and so on. But what has happened is what usually happens on the left, which is the left fetishizes words. It's always done it. It's done it as long as I've been associated with it. So it gets a word like austerity. Mm and demands you either be for it in totality or against it in totality, and this makes no sense. Because all you're really talking about is what's your economic plan versus what your economic plan is, and so on. And I, I've always done it, and, and it did, it, it did it the, 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 exactly the same thing back in the late 70s, early 80s, about things like unilateral dis disarmament. It decided that unilaterally disarming was, for some reason, the absolute key acid test of whether, where you stood on the political spectrum. And, of course, for most people, it is not the key acid test of where you stand on the political spectrum. The key acid test, probably, of where you stand on the political spectrum when it comes to elections, and not to party membership, etc., is, are this lot going to fuck you over at the next election or not by and large will you emerge from it slightly better off or worse off and the country slightly better or worse off than you were yeah. before that probably will still be the key but presumably i mean in 1982 83 
Um, I was a member of Youth CND, I think, and, and it did seem to be more of an issue. The Cold War was heating up. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to ask you something, because actually one of the, the interesting aspects about the, the, the CND and nuclear holocaust was the emotionalism mm. um, of a date. We're all going to die, you know, uh, your children, everyone's going to be killed. And this is, you, you said something, because you were talking about the twibbons and the sort of emotion aspect has, has come up, and you, you, you talked about a new, the, the sort of a new language, so the, 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 some of the distinctions between how we talk publicly and privately yeah. have been um, broken down. Um, and you know some of the ways in which we talk private is far more ranty and abusive in some respects. Do you mean that? Or no, I don't. Do what, I, I, what I mean and is just the role for emotion. I mean just. I mean, I mean just more directly. I mean, I, I was listening to Nikki Morgan, who's the education secretary, on the PM program the other day, and. It was like a procession of political cliches. It absolutely was. Um, on up and down the country, she said, up and down the country, three separate times in a short interview, on the doorsteps, it's under review, and so on. Now, this language doesn't mean what she, it doesn't actually mean that. It means something slightly different. It's a way of avoiding a discussion rather than a way of having a discussion, and people understand that now. Um, you know, we, we're not. It, it was it, as a form of well, Orwell wrote his famous but. Um, essay about political language which I urge everybody to read it's not absolutely faultless but it is a really good starting point for thinking about political language and it's as if nobody in modern politics has actually read the bloody thing yeah okay <clears throat> right it's time to bring in the audience I want a mic here at the front yep go for it all right uh my name is Leszek Ozdowski I'm from Poland uh journalist from Libertad it seems oh all right now it works uh it seems that uh well Jeremy Corbyn hasn't changed a bit, but the British politics changed a lot. And uh, it's not only British politics. I think it's politics everywhere, at least on the European continent. So you don't, perhaps, uh, you wouldn't win elections in the centre anymore. And radical becomes new normal. It's, I think it's the reason for it, this is, well, globalisation took off a lot of power from politicians, who, of course, cannot... Uh, tell us openly we can't do anything so they're still pretending or at least we are entering into their kind of culture wars but uh, issues like economy are not decided by most of the governments anymore and maybe Britain was and still is uh, uh, an exemption from this role so uh, the, the thing with Corbyn and the likes like Nigel Farage or Viktor Orban or the far uh, right which is going to win uh, in, in Poland elections next week is that they have good diagnosis, uh, so that people want to have uh, power, want to uh, have a say, but the thing is they are uh, giving a false promise that we can help you, we can solve your problem. Which is actually a, a question of sovereignty of the national state. So, the, the, well, my question to you is that, uh, do you think that uh, Britain, because uh, of the fact that actually, well, you might uh, leave uh, uh, EU, that, that actually, well, at least uh, you, you don't have to obey to some of the EU rules, is because is Britain could be actually, uh, is Jeremy Corbyn uh, unelectable in Britain, because Britain still not, did not give up enough power to the, to the forces of globalization. Okay, we're in here. You mentioned uh, populism and also consumerism, um, and I, want, I wanted to share my experience with you. So during the European elections, I could hear politicians saying that they were in love with European democracy, and I said, oh, right, I mean, that's great because I also love the direct democracy, and I wanted to know what you, what you would think about um, 
this new democratic tool, which is the Citizen uh, European Initiative. And to, much to my surprise, uh, the politician in question said, oh, well, I mean, that's, that's, that's great to keep people busy, but I don't really believe uh, in this type of tool. So I would like you to it? explain to me this paradox. Okay, hands up, hands up, here at the front. Um, I noticed quite a lot of this new politics and lots of new parties, especially Jeremy Corbyn, don't really have a particular answer or policy to the, one of the questions that's going to affect this parliament, a.k.a. the EU referendum. Um, you know, um, Jeremy Corbyn has not said his exact policy on a large amount of things, particularly that thing, which is going to be in about two years. You know, we don't know what Jeremy Corbyn wants about it, really. Does he want to go out? Does he want to stay in? Does he want it to be a socialist superstate led by a dictatorship of the proletariat? I'm not really sure. And it's the same thing. Like, you know, Jeremy Corbyn appears to have a lot of, you know, I want to do this, but you don't know how he's going to do this. Um, yeah, I just wanted to pick up on this idea of the age of unreason and its relation to populism. And I think I, I find that quite jarring because actually, you know, the age of unreason is something that is sort of brought on by elites. And as we've been discussing in the debates over the weekends, we've learned that elites believe in some pretty irrational things. They want to suppress our freedoms. They believe in more immigration control. They believe in foreign intervention. And, you know, I've been to university, so I have seen people interfere with dead animals in sexual ways. But I've never seen a foreign Western military intervention. So I kind of... <laughs> I know which one I believe is true. Okay, well, that was, that's a, a conversation starter. Um, so, red mic here, but Dennis, can just give it to Luke there, in the middle. Um, yeah, I just, I just wanted to know the panel's opinion on whether or not part of the reason why um, I, again, that may be wrong, but I've seen people being more interested in um, politics because of Jeremy Corbyn is because is for, again, I may be wrong, it, for my, in my opinion, it's nice to have someone who isn't dancing around the point and going, oh, well, of course, or, oh, yes, of course I can. And, uh, yes, I am interested. He's more willing to, again, he's, he's still trying to be elected, but he's still he's more willing to give an actual um, point of view and say, look, actually, I don't agree with this, or you are pandering me, or you are doing this. And it's just nice for once to have um, politics which doesn't feel like it's being given to you with a silver spoon and be like, by the way, it's okay, here's a, here's a sweet, it's fine. I, I'm just wondering what the panel's opinion on whether or not this is true. Or yeah, if well, I'm well, let's ask you, what, what's the real kick? for you? What's the real point of view that he's put forward strongly that makes you sort of... Again, I, 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 I'm, I'm just interested to see within the next um, over the next four years how he and, and in fact the party progresses and how they and how other people react to it and I want to see whether this movement we've got at the moment of no I will be genuine does continue or whether it is just a facade and it, that's, I'm, not, I'm just interested to see what happens at this moment. I'm not going to put my cards on the table yet. Um, at the risk of being reductive, I think everything that is wrong with the left can be summed up in one tweet from The Guardian last week, which was an article about a viral video from, lifted from Question Time where the woman broke down in tears about her tax credits. And The Guardian tweeted this, uh, an article whose headline, the, the headline of the piece was, um, look at this woman, basically, I'm paraphrasing, but look at this woman crying, now's our chance. I think what's, what was interesting about that is it captured, firstly... Labour's obsession with communication. I think ever since they lost the election, they've been making the point that they were communicating the wrong messages. And what that tells me is that what they're really trying to figure out is why um, the people don't know what's good for them and why they don't know that what Labour is saying is good for them. 
and it's a deeply contemptuous idea of, uh, of their own, uh, what used to be their constituency and what used to be their power base. Uh, just very quickly, secondly, it also sums up their focus on nastiness and they're really not doing politics anymore, they're doing personality. So that's why believing in, or being a Tory, being a Conservative, is not seen as politically wrong. It's, it's evil, it's nasty and horrible. Um, so I thought that was very uh, illustrative. Okay, red microphone, black microphone, right to the back before gentlemen. Um, just to say, uh, Cameron gave a speech at the Conservative Party conference where he said, um, I think he used the term Corbyn being Britain-hating. Um, and the next day's headline in the Metro, uh, <coughs> the free newspaper that's given out, was that Cameron attacks Britain-hating Corbyn. So I'd be interested in the panel's opinion of, um, because Alex is welcoming Jeremy Corbyn because it will increase political debate, how someone on the left wing is going to be able to get a message across given the centre or right-wing leaning perspective of the majority of the media. Because the Metro simply, that was their headline. There's no backing for explaining why... Cameron had said or why they repeated it but the headline simply was Britain hating Corbyn Yes, uh, buy a decent newspaper buy a newspaper <laughs> um, I was interested about David Aronovich saying about them not, people not reading old political books um, you, this is about the Corbyn effect and I'm, I'm from Elgin in the north of Scotland and my view is all the way down the country past the, what used to be the Manchester Gardens of London and it's a different echo chamber and it's not the Corbyn effect it's it's, it's the Corbyn, the Corbyn is a result of everything else that's going on in the country. What I would like to know from the panel is, oh, the, the thing about the, um, the elites, we don't have a problem with the elites, we have a problem with incompetent elites from Eton. That's the problem we've got. Okay, I don't actually, it's not, it's not that they're elite, it's they're incompetent and obviously incompetent. That's the real problem. So my question to the panel is, how would you go about ensuring that political parties choose decent MPs? The, the point about the doctor who was, frankly, walked the job because he was the right person for the job. We don't seem to have that anymore. What would the panel do about it? Thank you. Well, I'll bring the panel back. A couple of things that I... You can come back on whatever you like. A couple of things um, I'd be interested in. One is this sort of globalisation debate. It's all the sort of Blairite, third-way repackaging of Margaret Thatcher's There is no alternative, and the argument goes that basically um, politicians... Um, are powerless in this new world and um, you can't really blame them um, for the fact that they don't rule very well anymore because it's not their, um, they're not, not their fault. That's, that's, that's how the criticism um, of it goes. So it'd be interesting if, if on the panel we could address that. Is it true? Um, and, and what are the implications um, for um, <clears throat> accountability? I think we'll leave you referend one side for a minute, but I, I, I want, I want to, us to think about that. As well, and its focus again—it's coming up again—is the, the focus on on emotions, uh, nastiness, um, tears, and this feeling that Corbyn um, is genuine and authentic when Corbyn hasn't really sort of said anything or done anything uh, strikingly authentic to the cause um, of international socialism yet. Um, but do feel free to to come back. How you like? Anyone want to particularly? Go first, coming back from those points. Sure, I, I will. Um, I pick up on the point right at the back that was about uh, centrism and uh, the idea. It seems that we're being told you don't win elections from the middle 
anymore. We're in a time of culture wars when you motivate your own guys and, and try to get their mouth and that's how you win. Well, of course, that's what uh, American politics ha- has thought for some time. Uh, certainly Nixon uh, said, you tear the country in half, I'll, I'll take the bigger half. Good politician, <laughs> less good at fractions, but um, you, you, you see the point that, that he was making. Um, but the message is, look, to be uncharitable about, about Corbyn, having been unexpectedly nice about him to start with, I think you may think the message from the two main parties is now very similar. The Conservative Party is saying, if you're a moderate, vote for the Conservative Party. And the Labour Party is saying, if you're a moderate, vote for the Conservative Party. <laughs> right? Because that's certainly how you would watch the way they treat their own moderates MPs. The way that the Corbyn leadership treats the people they need, not to get a majority, they haven't got one of those if all of them turn out, but just to have a respectable minority is remarkable. The vitriol with which they treated those who abstained over Osborne's measure in Parliament last week was, was something to behold. So I think that. Secondly, I just want to pick up on this point about Corbyn's change of style in, in politics. My, position, my, my view on this is it's fine now. Indeed, <coughs> a lot of people think it's quite attractive. But over time, that shtick will get very tired for two reasons. One, actually people do like to be told, I'm like you. They don't like you to bluntly disagree with them. So that's the kind of the, the pull factor for Corbyn, that he's got his own opinions, actually will sap away from him a little bit. But the second uh, reason that it's going to come off is that uh, as long as he carries on with the Nancy from Edmonton, uh, what thinks this Prime Minister line, isn't that nice? And Prime Cameron says, well, Nancy, thank you very much. That's a nice question. By the way, you've got the same name as my daughter. Anyway, what I'd like to say to you in return is, and you've got you know, one nice person bat- uh, bowling uh, gently and another nice person batting back. It suits the Tory party no end. It won't be the Conservatives that change that position from uh, Corbyn. It'll be his own party saying, for Christ's sake, Grandad, fire up, get on with it. Uh, that's, that'll be what changes his messaging. I'm interested in this thing of sort of consumerism and radical as the new normal uh, and all the rest of it. And, y- you know, it is clear, I think, that there is now more choice for the voters, which is what people have said they've wanted for a long time. But that does mean, you know, you've now got an actual party on the right, UKIP, and an actual party on the left, Labour under Corbyn, and then a kind of mess in the middle where the parties in the middle don't really know how to kind of reform, revivify themselves and start again for now. But it does mean that first past the post, the system that's always kept this country kind of moderate, is under incredible pressure and isn't really working anymore. Um, And I would argue that we're not going to sort out this question of what the new party politics looks like until we actually address that question. Because what really worries me, actually, is the fact that First Past the Post is now reinforcing division and schism in the UK. If you look at what happened in Scotland, you know, 50% of the Scots didn't vote for the SNP, but they have 96% of the Mm. Scottish seats in the House of Commons. That's actually a disaster for the UK as a whole. Um, You you know, if you look at the way even the map of England is divided because because of first past the post, you've got people unrepresented in their own uh, own place, and it, it that 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 I think is very unhealthy. And so I think we are moving. You know, David talked about the breakdown of class based party politics and that's absolutely key you know and and that's only going to get more dramatic as younger generations become voters who have absolutely no traditional allegiance or family allegiance to one the blue team or the red team and the system has to adapt Andrew do you say something but I also want because you you sort of asked it and you wrote this the article um, in in defense of Corbyn do you think that um, Cameron's attack Tory party comments as him as a Britain hater and Oz, you know, he wouldn't be able to 
press the button and, and, and predict, uh, protect Britain um, in terms of drone strikes and all the rest of it. Do you, do you think, did you like that tone? Well, I um, and, and do you think it will work? I'm in favour of adversarial politics, I'm, I, and I think Corbyn, at Prime Minister's questions, he can do it in a reasonable tone of voice if he wants to, but he's got to attack the Tories, and that, that is what will get Labour people really cheering if he does that successfully. It's very difficult, but that is his job. Um, so I, 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 I think, actually, the one of the dangers at the moment is that we're going to get a kind of consensus which is run by Cameron and Osborne. They're very, very good at it. They're buying up all the best people. They've bought up Andrew Adonis, you know, gifted Labour... Peer, they've they've bought up, or, or at least given important work to people like Mark Carney or or Robert Choate. They get these gifted people who are not conservatives, but they be, and then they've got the Northern powerhouse. So they'll get the the um, Labour leaders in the north of England again, all part of the Osborne Cameron system. And I think in the end that's very bad. Um, I think we we need adversarial politics, and I hope in Scotland that the overwhelming victory of the SNP, which is above all an anti-Labour victory will impel, either it will impel Labour to get its act together and reconnect with the Scottish people, or it will give an opportunity for the Conservatives to do that. David? Um, it's quite interesting that, um, that we should end, we should come round to the SNP, because the SNP is a very, very good example of a party that seems to suggest something whilst doing something completely different. Now, the most important thing about the SNP, the clue is in the name, Scottish National Party. That's why it gets most of the support it does, because it represents an idea of Scottish, uh, Scottish national identity, which has become to trump everything else. But the SNP is a centrist party. Absolutely centrist party. Look at its policies, look at what it actually does. Even in things like the things that it chooses to say it's radical about. Take an example, tuition fees. An absolutely classic example. Who actually, in class terms, benefits from there being no tuition fees? It isn't the working class. Because by and large, 50% of them, and in Scotland even like, don't go, most of them don't go to university. It's the middle classes. So actually, the CSNP cements its middle class votes. Likewise, they don't charge, and they make a left-wing thing of it, they don't charge for prescriptions. Who, in England and Wales, pays prescriptions? Middle class people do. So the SNP appeal to their middle class vote. They are, as one of their leading characters, John Swinney, once said, we are camped on the centre ground. But it's the Scottish centre ground, it's the Scottish national centre ground. Their populism is an anti-British populism, which will take almost any kind of critique of Britain, the British elite, etc., up to and including the notion of VIP paedophiles, as I've discovered, etc., and use it against the notion of what Westminster and the United Kingdom actually is. But it is actually centrist. Now, if we're going to ask ourselves which, if you like, general tendency stands the best chance, other things being equal, i.e. articulated in equal ways, of winning, I'll put it to you that a broadly centrist political project is much more likely to win than one that is outside. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't want to take you up too much on this, Bruno, but actually the problem for Nigel Farage was he wasn't toast when he said that about Romania, but it absolutely was a sign that he wouldn't get any further than he had done at the European elections. And it was one of the things, and Alex will probably bear me out on uh, 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 this, it was one of the things that has given anti-European EU campaigners a significant problem. Absolutely. Uh, it does. Farage is actually toxic to the anti-EU case, precisely because, actually, he is 
like that. So funnily enough, you still have the opportunity for a significant series of centre projects, if you like, some centrist politics, and that's what people by and large... Who is the most successful politician in Europe today? Who? Angela Merkel, by a country mile. Now, the difficulty she's having at the moment is with the refugee crisis, and this shows something else which is, which, which is going on at the moment. But nevertheless, she is one of the most successful politicians. If you were to give a range of politicians to the British people and say, Chick, pick one of those out, which one would you have to lead us? Who do you think they would choose? Do you think they would produce Tsipras from Syriza, let alone his, his Corbynite wing that split off and became uh, uh, national, or what was it, popular unity? They'd, they'd, they'd pick Angela. I think that, that was true. That was true until her most recent positioning on immigration, where again, I mean, every newspaper in the land said, "You know, um, allow more um, freedom of movement, allow more people to come." And politicians who took positions against that did so knowing that um, that they would have grassroots support both in their own party and from the public. I thought it was telling that the time that um, the Conservative Party softened its messaging on um, allowing more asylum seekers and refugees uh, to this country last month, um, which was applauded by all of the uh, national newspapers and all of the other parties. The local government association, which is, again, cross-party and representative people who would actually be doing some of the delivery um, of, of services, was far more critical of that of that position. You know, we've got people on our waiting list who've been there not for days or for weeks or for months, but sometimes for years. And now you're telling us you're going to bring people in and put them in on top. Not a party political point. Half of the people expressing that view were were solid Labour uh, people. It was a, it, it, that reflects a disconnect between local and national. And on that point, I thought what Andrew was saying about the Northern Powers very interesting. How did Labour ever let the Tories own even a little bit of the idea of the North? If you, and it's not Corbyn's fault, of course. It happened under Miliband before he got uh, to the reins of power. But the idea that Osborne gets to own the intellectual capital over revivifying the North is extraordinary. And yet that march has been carried out. And you now see plenty of Labour local leaders in the North saying, well, listen, chum, you didn't win an election. You can't do something for me. And if the Tories can, then I'll go with them on that, even if it means not being loyal to you. And what do I care? you've rebelled more against the Labour whip than any of us have anyway. Um, so, you know, there's a certain force to that. Okay, but so, and coming back to something you said about the, the, the appetite for a broadly centrist party, and that seems to be how the Conservatives um, are pitching themselves along the lines of what Andrew was talking about, and Andrew made a plea for adversarial um, <laughs> politics. So, so, are you relaxed about that. What about uh, Cameron and Osborne? Well, it's an obvious R ruling, thing. ruling Britain maybe for another. No, day. it's 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 an absolutely obvious thing to do. I was I, I was amused by the the, uh, the the man from Elgin talking about Etonians, etc. I'm one of now one of the oldest people in this room, and it, it does come as a shock when that begins to be the case for you. And I do actually remember as a kid listening to somebody talking about why they had voted. It was a working class Scottish voter in Scotland actually for Sir Alec Douglas Hume. The old Etonian, Lord Hume, Lord Douglas Hume, who was standing in Perth or something like that. And I remember her saying, well, she said, the thing is about uh, him is he's an Etonian and they're born to rule. He said they're raised for, to it. And so it was kind of, so I, I don't know whether things actually really were better in the, in, in the old days because there was actually a habit of deference and a habit of, and ways of looking at politics which has simply, simply now disappeared. Um, 
But, of course, it's an obvious thing for the Conservatives to do, mm. for the Conservative centre to do. Not the centre right, not the right. The Conservative right doesn't particularly like it, and it doesn't like Cameron. It's never liked Cameron. And it's, his success is, a, is something that baffles them, actually, as much as it baffles some other people. Um, the fact that, I mean, it was very interesting, that business about Cameron not reading books. Every... All of the most successful politicians in this country are always accused of not reading enough books. It's funny. It's an absolute... They're not sufficiently intellectual. You always get a Doris Lessing that say Blair's an ignoramus or something like that. Uh, and the more they say that, the more successful they are because actually politics, politicians don't need to read novels. It's, the, it's got nothing to do with their job. I might like it and prefer to have a hinterland like that because I read novels myself. But the most successful political people I've, uh, I've ever come across... I've ever come across haven't. That actually something of a diversion but anyway you would expect somebody like Cameron to use the opportunity from his point of view to claim the centre ground that Labour has vacated in Corbyn and as it becomes more and more clear that it is vacated either that I mean Corbyn has two choices he either says clearly what he is in which case Labour's vote will, dis will, will, will drop dramatically or he tries to trim off to the centre, in which case he will look increasingly incompetent. I can't see that there's another, another alternative for him. Uh, and so it's only a matter for of, I think, now come back next year and throw this and say you were totally bloody wrong. I think it's only a matter of time before a lot of those numbers we've seen in the new party members, etc., begin to reverse very sharply back the other way. Okay, we'll again. Oh, uh, one of the things I found very interesting about listening to the whole debate on Corbyn is uh, um, of how people are talking about, oh, now Labour's lurched too far to the left, oh, now the Conservatives can come in and, like, uh, to the centre, etc. And all of this has seemed to be based a lot more on political tactic. And to me, this seems really kind of patronising to people of, uh, to actually the general populace and the uh, people who actually vote and saying that irrelevant... Uh, you know, people won't listen to any arguments. If, let's say, Corbyn, you know, decided to come out as incredibly left-wing, put forward um, entirely really convincing arguments, it would still not matter. That There's never any thought of actually that these people could perhaps be, you know, intellectually intelligent, convince people, debate with them, win them over to their party. It's just you, whoever goes for the centrist ground and maybe makes advantage of the current situation, not actually winning the debate. And to me, that in a way seems highly illiberal and slightly anti-democratic anti viewpoint. Okay, you pass the red microphone to the gentleman there in the blue top. I just okay. want to come back on that original notion of Corbyn as a populist leader, a populist uh, figure. Corbyn's been saying the same thing for 30 years. He's been profoundly unpopular for 30 years. What's happened is that the disillusionment of large numbers of the population have suddenly found in him someone who offers the opportunity to fracture the game. And that would be the game that is played in Westminster and the game that's played in the media commentary on Westminster. And I'm reminded that, of that by listening to this debate today. So many people in this country now really feel that they don't trust some of the systemic issues that we're faced with. We don't trust an economy based on debt. We don't trust the abandonment of international public law. And anybody that's going to address even those two issues, or even talk about them, in a way, is going to appeal to an awful lot. But we have a soft uprising in this country. The only issue is how big a soft rising it is and how long it sustains. And uh, I hope it will sustain. If you pass the microphone to who's behind you. 
Um, my question is mainly, how can we say that Corbyn is someone so central and is quite a popular person? His first two moves was to make a shadow chancellor who wasn't supported by the mo- most of the major banks, wasn't really supported by the city, and then his second move was to make a vegan uh, his shadow agriculture person. I mean, that's just, surely that's foolish because most people won't really understand where he's coming from and he loses a lot of popular vote from it. Okay, in the back. There's been, a, there's been a lot of talk so far of the centre ground, but the problem is there's no objective. There's no objective. It's on. Yes. Yes, it's on. There's no objective definition of what the centre ground is. So, in fact, far from taking the centre ground, I now believe David Cameron is pursuing a strategy of moving to the centre left. Those of you who watched his speech will see he talked a lot about climate change, minority rights. Um, more, he committed in the manifesto to endless more money for the NHS. I believe that so long as he's slightly to the right of Jeremy Corbyn, he can do whatever the hell he wants. He just wants office for the sake of office. He doesn't have a purpose. And so that's why I think, you know, he's just going to keep going because he, doesn't, he doesn't read and he doesn't have any conviction. So why not? Um, I actually want to uh, go back to what, what you just mentioned as well because I find it quite extraordinary that in a discussion which is about as you called it, a soft uprising, that the issue of elect- electoral reform has been uh, sort of on the side mentioned as there is evidence that first past the post kept Britain moderate. I don't, it's absolutely flabbergasting how there is evidence for that. And also, I mean, you mentioned um, Angela Merkel... Keep keep the microphone by your face. Sorry. You mentioned Angela Merkel as the most successful politician. He doesn't come from a country where there is first past the first. He comes from a country... uh, She comes from a country where there's proportionate representation. And the whole Corbyn issue is basically a reflection of the British electoral system, which is incapable of picking up various opinions and carrying them around and which doesn't understand that maybe in the modern world consensus is is more effective if you're serious about democracy than um as you mentioned it as uh, adversarial politics sorry i'm very excited i'm not british so I, that's very good well done right hands up if you want to speak hands up so there's a guy at the back and the guy here and then we're going to come back to the panel um sorry um El- elvin correspondent again um the thing is, um, in Scotland we've had proportional representation. It was a gerrymandering to make sure that the national, nationalists weren't elected. Oh, and they've been elected twice. They've now got majority government in the, in the Scottish Parliament in a, under a proportional system. And it doesn't look like they're going anywhere fast. And the second thing is, actually, to come back to the point about why people are going for Jeremy Corbyn, is, uh, they still haven't answered my question. What would you do to get decent politicians? Because, as the gentleman said, he's been doing the same thing for 30 years. He's been sticking to his guns. People realise these guys are amateurs. This guy clearly knows what he wants to do. He's clear about what he's saying. Give him a chance. I'm, I personally wouldn't vote for him, but there we are. But that's what people want. They want something definite that's not a PR or a, or a, um, a flack or some spad who's been trained up. It's, you, I mean, for all this thing about we're going to give people um, training in, in employment, making people a spad and then they go from being a spad to a politician... It's not good enough. We need better politicians. There's a danger of reading too much into something that will probably be regarded by history as simply a cock-up. I mean, the, the, the Labour Party... <laughs> the Labour, there's always a far-left candidate in every Labour election. On this occasion, he got elected because Miliband created a stupid system in which several hundred thousand people could vote for him. The fact that several hundred 
thousand people on the hard left and a few Tory trolls have elected Corbyn probably doesn't tell you anything at all, actually, about the mood of the nation. Uh, it's certainly not evidence of populism. It's probably quite the opposite, actually, of evidence of populism. The reality is that Corbyn has the worst polling numbers of any opposition leader. Most of his MPs can't stand him, never wanted him to be leader. And in a few years' time, he will probably just be the answer to a pub quiz question. It doesn't tell you anything about the state of the nation at all. OK. Um, I mean, it's, it's summing up time. 90 seconds. Um, we're doing it the other way around. David, simply a cook-up. <laughs> actually, <laughs> you're right, of course. I mean, actually, I mean, first I say I agree about PR, but then I did campaign for the alternative vote, a very mild farm PR. We couldn't even get that through, um, uh, thanks to Alex partially, I think. Um, but um, uh, yes, I think actually it's a combination of circumstances that created to give this. But he hasn't been saying the same thing for 30 years, Jeremy Corbyn. He's been saying the same thing for 45 years. And so on. He was. Uh, he was boring people to death 40 years ago with this. And it's very funny to me as 61 to find people turning around to a twin and say, it's all very refreshing. You say, I really have to try and look at this with new eyes because I honestly did find it tedious 40 years ago and it hasn't got any better. Um, but at least they don't, you know, there's a But yes, I do think a lot of it actually will be put down to error. But the problem is, it's not an error that is easily rectified for Labour. And it also shows you how the thing can happen. Yeah, it's a question of how much damage he, he can do while he's there, I suppose. And is he, is he going to remain leader for five years and then go on to lose the election? It seems to me quite a difficult proposition. But on the other hand, um, we were all consigning Corbyn to the dustbin of history right now. He may seem like he's miles off the pace, but if the economy takes a downturn, then there's only been one, one camp that's been openly critical of capitalism. And there's a lot of people in this country who can't remember the last time uh, we really tested that theory and we had the winter of discontent and we let um, the left have, have their head. And when Corbyn says, actually, maybe capitalism's not working, there's a fair chunk of the electorate who say maybe he's got a point. So actually, I think we, we run the risk of underestimating Corbyn at our peril. It, you can see him um, do badly now at a time when uh, the economy is ticking over. But with a majority of only 12 and a European referendum yet to come, and we don't know what's going to happen on that either, we may yet see um, success uh, for Corbyn. And I say that as someone who, uh, for all of the, things, the nice things I've said about him refreshing politics, electorally I don't wish him well at all, but I think we shouldn't underestimate him for a moment. Randall. Um, yes. Uh, great interventions from everyone, great correctives from the audience, I felt. But um, essentially, I mean, this is very interesting, this idea that sort of anyone who's sort of disagreeing with the Corbyn point of view is trying to sort of suppress debate and that that's a liberal. I don't really accept that. I mean, you know, the, the, the MPs who put him on the ticket wanted to have him there so they could have an open debate with the left. You know, and that is how we're in this situation. Um, and I personally am delighted to have a debate with all, all points of view uh, represented. That is how our democracy should work. But if we just have a debating society, except for the Conservative Party, which has turned into a kind of governing machine, then where do we get to? Because none of the issues that we actually want addressed you know, will be addressed. And I think, it's, you know, we've had several, several people saying, well, what, the politicians are just rubbish. You know, we've got these terrible Etonians, we need better politicians. I mean, that's undoubtedly true. Sometimes it is quite depressing watching the House of Commons. But some of them are really, really good too, actually. You know, and Alan Johnson, who I think is great, uh, you know, unfortunately doesn't want to do it, but the leader that Labour should have had, 
um, you know, he describes it as a noble calling. And actually, I think it is, because it's really, really hard. And trying to make compromises that satisfy the people who put you there with the changing problems that face the country year on year is actually quite tricky. Um, and, you know, pe people should get involved. But unfortunately, there is no evidence that the people getting involved because of Corbyn are any different to the people who were involved anyway, or were motivated anyway. Um, and if you don't believe me, have a look at the LSE Politics blog this week, which has got a very depressing study um, on the supposed uprising of young people's interest in politics of Corbyn. It's not, it doesn't actually exist, unfortunately. Andrew, I think a wonderful word has, has come out of this discussion, well, probably lots of wonderful words, but one of them is unpopulist, and that is the exact description of Corbyn. I think he's an unpopulist. <laughs> Um, this carries dangers for our politics because Cameron, first of all, I'm afraid he destroyed Miranda's lot, the Lib Dems, and he still isn't sort of convicted of political murder, but he murdered them at the election, having, having made this offer to them which they couldn't refuse. There's now a danger that he will pretty much murder the Labour Party as well and we won't have an opposition. Of course, we will have an opposition. Something new will be created, but I, I don't think it will be led by Corbyn. OK. Please thank our panel and speakers from the audience. Thank <laughs> you.